You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. In today's day and age, where TV options are so fragmented, The Last Dance has consistently drawn a striking number of viewers on an array of platforms. Globally, much of the sports world has been transfixed. It surely helps that few live sporting events are occurring during the pandemic, but there's something else at work. Nearly 22 years after Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen guided the Chicago Bulls to their sixth championship in eight years, there's a nostalgia factor, as many relish in reliving these moments. And for the younger generation, it's an entirely different joy, essentially witnessing this piece of sports history in real time, though not quite. Our guest today appears in The Last Dance and had an up-close and personal view of these historically great Bulls teams. Melissa Isaacson took over the Bulls beat for the Chicago Tribune in 1991, right after the team's first title. She would closely cover the team for the next four seasons, but even after Melissa left the beat to cover the Bears day-to-day for the Tribune, she still managed to write the occasional Bulls feature story or column. She's presently a lecturer at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, as well as an accomplished author. In fact, to close the interview, we'll be discussing her latest work, State, A Team, A Triumph, A Transformation, a spectacular book on basketball, girls' empowerment, and life more broadly. Before we begin, let's run through a few fun facts about Melissa, per our On the NBA Beat tradition. As a high school senior in 1979, her basketball team defeated future Olympic gold medalist Jackie Joyner's squad for the Illinois state title. 16 years later, Melissa was the first reporter to break the news that Michael Jordan would be switching to number 45. Well before social media or quick online stories, she had to settle for a tiny blurb in the next day's newspaper. Here we go. Thanks so much for joining us for this discussion, Melissa. We're really excited to do it. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. There's so much to get into, so I'll just start right now. As someone who is there up close for all of these memorable moments that are detailed in the docuseries The Last Dance, and of course you spoke to Michael Jordan countless times, including in Birmingham where he was really transparent with you, What do you think is the most commonly misunderstood aspect of Michael Jordan, the person? Um, I I think that over the years, he really has been sort of portrayed as this egomaniac, you know, and, and, uh, and he's kind of helped along with that narrative. I mean, with his Hall of Fame speech, I was taken in a way that I was sort of really shocked by. I actually really liked his Hall of Fame speech. It sounded to a lot of people like he was, you know, being selfish and sort of blaming, I don't even remember it exactly, but it was just very negatively received. And I thought it was very authentic, Michael. And I think that, uh, you know, those of us who got to know him a little bit and got close to him and hopefully the audience 
we'll see through the docuseries, you know, those who maybe had one, you know, opinion of him that the competitive side of him is crazy. No question. I mean, it's, it's on a level that uh, most people, when you talk about competitive, you know, it's not even close. Um, it's not like a stereotype, but that is exactly what makes him who he is, what makes him as great as he is. So there's going to be some eccentric qualities, but I would never ever call him an egomaniac. Um, and I wouldn't call him a, a mean person, regardless of, you know, some of the scraps we've seen him get into with his teammates. Uh, and again, I think you see, you know, someone like Steve Kerr, who was punched in the eye, you know, still comes back and says, oh, yeah, you know, I was very gracious about, yeah, we, we got to be really close after that. And I understood. And, you know, so and you find that almost across the board with all of his former teammates. Hi, Missy. This is Joshua. Hi, Joshua. You were covering the Bulls as a beat reporter when you got married and while you were pregnant with your first child. Help us understand how fondly you look back at that time in your life, but also what were some of the biggest challenges covering those teams? Yeah, I really do look at it so fondly. It really spanned, like, even though it was only four seasons that I was the principal beat writer, I was around the team uh, for all six of the titles in the year before and after, I believe. But um, it was such a pivotal part of my life. It seemed like those four years, like <laughs> so many things happened. I mean, I got married and literally um, I, I tell people like the honeymoon was literally over. I, I left, I came back from my honeymoon and started on the bulls beat the next day and basically said goodbye to my husband. You know, I was like, <laughs> I'll see ya. <laughs> Maybe our fifth anniversary. And that's kind of what happened. So you know, going from that, going from being a 28-year-old newly married woman who, um, you know, I had had 10 years or eight years in the business at that point. I felt pretty comfortable. I had worked for the Orlando Sentinel and USA Today and a paper called Florida Today in Florida, uh, in Cocoa, Florida. Um, but still, it was obviously a huge thing to walk into. Sam Smith had written his book, Jordan Rules, which was a huge success, but also uh, didn't go over so great with Michael and, and some of the other bulls. And so it became necessary for him to step back off the beat and, uh, and take the NBA beat. And then here it was just handed to me. I mean, it was such a gift, uh, but it was also scary. And then, so kind of getting my feet wet there, trying to get used to, uh, a beat, trying to negotiate, you know, through these waters with the Jordan rules having just come out and then, oh yeah, taking on the responsibility of it being one of the clearly emerging as one of the great dynasties of all time. And how do I, how do I capably cover them and, you know, convey to readers uh, this great story, this great journey um, that they could only in those days, especially be a very tiny part of most people couldn't afford to get tickets Um the Chicago stadium was thought of as just this unbelievably special place, even though it was really icky and it was like getting ready to fall down. It was the aura and mystique of Michael Jordan in Chicago stadium. And I had to convey that each night and just tell sort of the, each chapter of this, of this great tale. And then, you know, getting pregnant with my first child, that sounds so weird, getting pregnant, being <laughs> pregnant <laughs> with my first child. Um, and then, you know, Michael coming back uh, after his first retirement 
And I was maybe seven, eight months pregnant at that time. Uh, she was born in early July of 95. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I uh, was kind of teetering around, you know, tottering, teetering, uh, literally, and not much in the <laughs> mood for, for working then. It was very exhausting, but it was so cool. Um, and Michael was wonderful. And so were all the players, you know, they, those who weren't fathers yet, uh, maybe some were newly married like me, you know, we were all around the same age. I've never had that experience before. Um, and, you know, haven't had it since, obviously. I, you keep getting older and the players keep getting younger. So that was the one experience where we were all around the same age. So that's kind of a, a different experience to have, too. And they were all just really sensitive to, you know, to me being pregnant. I have, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of memories of just that, you know, that one period of guys interacting with me, um, Michael patting my stomach before he ran on the court, you know, every game um, when he came back, he would look for me and, and pat my stomach and for luck, I guess. And, you know, ordinarily you might be like a little put off or uncomfortable, but again, this was Michael Jordan, you know? And right. so it's like, okay, whatever, you know, it's pretty cool. Maybe someday I'll tell my kid about it. And certainly I did tell my kid about it. Who's now 24, you know? So it was just a magical, magical time. I felt blessed. I still feel blessed. And somebody asked, a lot of people have asked, we aware of how great it was. You know, oftentimes it takes many years to look back and fully appreciate things. Um, I fully appreciated it. I did because it was clear that he was the greatest player in the world. I really thought, and many of us thought, we'd never see anyone like him in our lifetime. And we've seen some close. I don't think we've seen anyone uh, to that degree, uh, the, the kind of clutch player he is and just the all around athlete he is. So I knew what we were watching. I knew it was really, really special. I knew it was, it, it was amazing and, and, uh, that I needed to soak it in. So, um, I say that because I could, I could actually remember myself thinking that at the time. Yeah. In addition to being the beat writer for the Chicago Tribune, you were also Michael Jordan's good luck stomach. That's, right. that's a very interesting fact. I mean, it's, you know, you know, because you're my student, um, you know, I mean, it, that would be sort of embarrassing under normal circumstances. But like, like I said, it was Michael Jordan. I don't know that everybody was even aware of it. It was sort of our little thing, our little joke. You know, he wouldn't, if I was anywhere near uh, as he ran out, he would always just come over and give my stomach a pat, you know, and it was just funny. So, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if a good luck term, because he had a couple bad games in there, by the way. The first one was really bad, so <laughs> I can't take well, credit. It was all part of the experience and an experience of a lifetime, it sounds like. The the blog on your website is really terrific. Um, you talk about some of your favorite anecdotes from your time covering the team, and I strongly recommend that to listeners. We're going to link it um, in the show post as well. Thanks. For people like me, you, yeah, no problem. For people like me who just love all the quirky details, it's full of them. Are there any others that you'd like to share that didn't quite make the cut or <laughs> stories there that you included that you could expand upon? Um, I mean, I, I don't usually write. I've never really written down some of the things that I wrote there, um, you know, about uh, the memory of Ron Harper and B.J. Armstrong you know, simulating childbirth with a basketball because I was pregnant and we were talking about 
you know, natural childbirth and BJ was very horrified about it and, and saying he would never, you know, want to witness anything quite so, you know, gruesome. And, uh, you know, so next thing we know, we're, we're showing him how it's all done with a basketball and BJ as the mother and me as a, you know, Lamaze coach. And, and, and that, it, that's like a memory that, yeah, you just don't, <laughs> you just don't normally experience, you know. That was my favorite one. Yeah. I mean, that was, um, <laughs> A great one. I, I was very comfortable with these guys, clearly. Um, Michael, uh, this is a kind of a little bit of an insight into Michael. When he came back, he uh, Frank Isola, who was a New York reporter covering the Knicks, and we overlapped for many, many years, and I talked to him yesterday, and he remembered that when Michael came back, he was very protective of me uh, in the big scrum because, again, I was, you know, eight months pregnant. And he'd, he'd make sure everybody would back off so I could get in close. And I sort of remembered that, but not until he said it did I really remember how gentle and sensitive he was about that, which was really sweet. But I do remember being on the outside because I was often on the outside of the scrum because I didn't want to pass out and knock out half the media contingent as I did. But I was standing on the outside, and he was looking through everyone's legs. He was sitting, everyone was standing, and he was sort of looking for me to see if I was okay. And he said, Melissa, why are you wearing pumps? And, like, it just cracked me up. And I still remember that because, like, hey, what kind of – what man notices what shoes a woman's wearing? Who says pumps? You know, that was just so comical to me. And I was indeed wearing, like, low heels because – Pregnant women could could uh, appreciate your back hurts so bad that it, weird things make you feel better. And for some reason, like low heels, just, you know, whatever the gravity situation was made me feel better. But he noticed things like that. And that was wow. really kind of cute. Um, so there were a lot of, yeah, there were a lot of uh, stories with me pregnant. I um, went that same season, Scotty, I believe it was that same season. Uh, it may not have been, it may not have been pregnant, but I think I was, but anyway, Scotty and I were talking, he was going through a contract, um, you know, his extended contract, uh, dispute and didn't want to talk to any of the reporters. Uh, it was, you know, a media boycott, he called it. And we were all like, whatever, you know, it was February, March, the dog days of the season. We were all sick of each other. Um, you'd come near Scotty in the locker room and he'd be like, I'm not talking. And you'd be like, I'm not trying to talk to you. You know, like it was just so annoying. Everybody was just snapping each other. We were in a, a, the Boston garden visiting locker room, visitors locker room, which is about the size of, you know, your average closet. And I was sitting next to him going on and on. He had motioned me over and pretty soon we're engaged in this deep conversation and everyone's shooting us glances because they were so curious and irritated by us talking. What could we possibly you know, is he giving me this big scoop? And remember, this was very much pre-Twitter days, you know, so I'm certainly not getting ready to, you know, break it anywhere. Um, I only had the newspaper. So Tim Weigel, who was a local uh, legend and the CBS affiliate, uh, the TV sportscaster, uh, who has since passed away, and he was a great guy, he saw us talking, and you see the little light go on above his head, and he tried to get me on the early evening sportscast. And I knew why, because he was going to ask me what we were saying, you know. So he's like, uh, Melissa, you know, can you go live with us? If I, I said, Tim, I'm not telling you what we're talking about. And he's like, no, no, I'm not asking. I'm just, uh, no, I would never ask. I just uh, wanted to have you as a guest on our little 
they had some little five minute thing. So all of a sudden the lights go on and he's like, Melissa, so I've noticed you're talking to Scotty Pippen. What did you say? What did he say to you? Yeah, of course, you know. And so I'm looking at him. We're on live TV and I figure, you know, okay, if you're going to ask me that on live television, I'm going to tell you. And I just blurt out breastfeeding. And, you know, you want to know what we were talking about. And that's what we were talking about. He, he was his, I don't remember if he was married at the time, but he was having a baby and he was really curious about nursing and, and it was very sincerely. And so I was telling him very sincerely and, and it was like, you know, how it's healthier for the babies and blah, blah, blah. And Tim is dying, of course, you know? And so, um, so yeah, so it infiltrated motherhood infiltrated many of um, my most, you know, my, my clearest memories <laughs> of those days. That's really cool. This is Aaron, by the way, just so you don't get confused. Gotcha. So your first book, Transition Game, chronicled the Bulls' 93-94 season. That was Chicago's first year after Jordan initially retired. I'd love to know, just as Scottie Pippen aimed to transition into more of the role of a leader to fill that void left by Jordan, what were some of the growing pains that you saw that, that he faced? Yeah, well... He, he will say now that that was his most rewarding years uh, year rather season, and I think it was his best season all around, no question. I still argue he should have been the league MVP over David Robinson. He was incredible, and I think the some of the off court things that happened influenced the voting, and maybe understandably so. But he was uh, he blossomed, you know. While he was a tremendous complimentary player to Michael and clearly a Hall of Famer to be and top 50 player of all time and incredibly gifted and everything else, he didn't become a leader and he didn't become the kind of unselfish player that we always knew he was um, until that season. And he really, truly lifted that team and got the most out of it. I mean, they, by all accounts, they won 55 games and they could have gone all the way if not for a questionable call against the Knicks in the uh, in the conference playoffs um, the game five Hugh Holland's call if that hadn't happened and and little things they lost home court advantage on the very last day of the regular season a dumb loss to the Celtics they would have had home court seven. yeah sorry mm-hmm. yeah went seven right and so you know they would have played Indiana next in the conference finals who they owned pretty much, and then would have played the Rockets. So they were in a position, they, you know, nobody would have been shocked if they would have won, but, but yet they would have been shocked if at the beginning you would have said, without Michael, this team's going to compete, going to challenge for the f- title. And that was all Scotty. So now when you look back and you saw the documentary and, and the emphasis on the 1.8 seconds, you know, sit down, um, you think, unselfish? Are you kidding? Like, that's the most selfish act in the world. Earlier in the season, he had a concealed weapon in his car um, and got in some hot water over that. So you think like, oh, it's this controversial season and, you know, this terrible guy. And and his teammates, to a man, love Scotty. And even after that, I think even Bill Cartwright, who really, really, really was affected and was in tears in the locker room afterward yelling at him after he sat out that final 1.8. Um, and that was against the Knicks. And then Tony Kukoc took the final shot and made it. 
Um, so he was absolved in some ways because they won. And then the next game, as I recall, it may have been an early start, like a weird afternoon start. It was a super quick turnaround. That helped him then that he didn't have to address that. Um, so I think he got away with that sort of thing. But he told me later that after all that he sort of had established himself to be the kind of player he was, he was also very, very mad after what he had established and then for Phil to set him up as a decoy just didn't make sense to him. Um, on the possession before, which many people forget, he Tony had blown it and left him isolated, I believe, or he had tried to get isolation. Tony had screwed up. Um, and so he was burning up, you know, when he came off the court, cause that was a broken play that shouldn't have happened. So there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. And, you know, when you see a guy refusing to go in a game, there's really hard to gloss that over, but just know that Scotty is thought of as one of the most unselfish players that most of those bulls, uh, his bulls teammates have ever played with. If I can, I just wanted to ask you a really quick short answer question. If you want, you could just give me a, a one-word answer if you're comfortable. Yeah. But do you think that Scotty Pippen has gotten an unfairly bad rap with, with the documentary and how he's been portrayed? Or not necessarily? I mean, it's hard for me to be objective because I can't view it as others view it. I've heard others say that he had gotten a bad rap, but I don't think that was certainly not the intention of the filmmakers. So I, ho- yeah, I hope not. I understand. It's kind of a hard question for you to answer. And you've seen a lot that we haven't seen by virtue of covering the team so closely for so long. But I'm going to move on. It's kind of a, a little bit of a related topic. Jordan's production company, Jump 23, co-produced The Last Dance, which mm-hmm. some are arguing hurts the film's credibility to a certain extent. And I know also you may not be completely impartial because you've been interviewed for it, but also right. I know you have an opinion on this as a longtime practitioner of journalism and, and a professor of journalism. So um, a few weeks ago, documentarian Ken Burns was one notable voice to raise alarms about what I just mentioned. He told the Wall Street Journal, if you are there influencing the very fact of it getting made, it means that certain aspects that you don't necessarily want in aren't going to be in period. And that's not the way you do good journalism. And it's certainly not the way you do good history, my business. I should note when he made those remarks, he admitted he hadn't seen the docuseries. Uh Still, to what extent do you think he has a point? And how do you think the filmmaker Jason Hare and his team navigated those tricky ethical waters? Well, all I know is kind of what I observed of Jason Hare and Jake uh, Rogel. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, who is the coordinating producer? You know, my experience was that they were incredibly thorough. And so, you know, just from early on, I, I thought that they were going to do a, a good job. I'm not going to sit here and dispute, you know, someone like Ken Burns and one of the great documentarians, nor do I pretend to know anything about documentary filmmaking, which I think is a a slightly different, maybe a different brand of journalism. I think this documentary is a slightly different, you know, offshoot probably of the kind of documentaries, uh, the historical documentaries that Ken Burns is referring to and that he has made. So, you know, it's, look, it wouldn't get made otherwise. Okay. So uh, is it a good piece of work? Is it entertaining? Um, is it fair to everybody? I mean, you can argue that, 
you know, Jerry Krause isn't alive to dispute things. I mean, I knew Jerry Krause. I, I knew everything they're talking about. I could tell you Jerry Krause was incredibly difficult. And, and, and I could, you know, I didn't like Jerry Krause. I, you know, yeah, I feel bad about it that he's not here to defend himself. But I know what he'd say. I know how he said it all along, you know. So, uh, you know, was Michael made to look good? I think that if he wanted to look good, he wouldn't allow, you know, all the stuff about um, the gambling and all the stuff about, you know, him punching teammates and many of the stuff that we saw in episode seven and eight. You know, did they spend as much time on the gambling as maybe some people would have liked? Like, I mean, there's only so many hours that they had. So you can argue that. Um, I know that Jason Hare said he was shocked that Michael, quote unquote, allowed as much to go through in episode seven and eight as did. And so, you know, I don't think he pretends. I'm not here to defend him or speak for him in any way for Jason here, but I don't think he pretends to be doing the kind of documentary that Ken Burns is doing. I think they were yeah, given this opportunity and they were given this unbelievable amount of footage. And so either you do it or you don't, they needed the, they had to have the permission of Michael and the NBA. So I'm glad it's out there and you can argue if you want, you know, about every journalistic standard uh, that, you know, was it adhered to? I feel it's a fair portrayal as someone who is there. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's been a very authentic and, you know, accurate portrayal. I appreciate that response. I think you hit the nail on the head. Basically, this documentary, this docuseries doesn't get made. You need Jordan's approval. Um, also, you needed him to sign off on the 500 hours of behind the scenes footage that was shot during that 97, 98 season. So do you want a product that it is a little bit more influenced by Jordan than you would prefer or no product at all? And, you know, and I think that the filmmaker was really smart in the way, you know, those scenes where he showed him the iPad with the, with the interviews and had him react. I think that was a really clever way of saying, you know, he didn't know, every single thing you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's his reaction. And then they showed his reaction. They showed his true reactions and Michael allowed those reactions. Michael allowed them to show him tearing up and crying at the end, which was incredibly powerful. I thought, um, I think it was the end of episode eight, you know, and he wasn't crying about his dad. He was crying about how he was portrayed. And so if that's not honest filmmaking, I don't really know what is, I, you know, I, I thought it came off that way. Yeah. Just to wind down on this particular topic, I thought there was a column on The Guardian that was really thought-provoking that discussed a lot of the things we're talking about right now. I do think it went a little bit too far as to refer to this docuseries as little more than long-form branded content, because I think it's really well done. And, and like you said, it seems like Jordan did not have a heads up on certain things completely um although he did reportedly have editorial control and and final cut but i think that it's also just the media climate that we're in with websites like the players tribune social media where journalists often are are being skipped over as the intermediary and players and retired players have way more agency to kind of get their side of the story directly to readers and, and viewers so, I mean, Jason Hare, it was not like a 
fair fight. Jordan, he's barely talked about his time with the Bulls over the recent decades. So you kind of had to throw a bone to him to get him to participate and and um, have it have it be what it is now. And we're all benefiting from being able to view that. Agree. We're all benefiting. The footage alone is so cool, but the way they handle it, he's not a social media animal. So you're right. And he hasn't been interviewed much over the years. Um, they have ESPN, you know, former ESPN and current ESPN people like Wilbon and, and Andrea Kramer and David Aldridge. Um, but you know, Andrea is not with ESPN anymore. David's not with ESPN anymore. And I thought that they were absolutely, you know, candid, with their comments, not always flattering, not always complimentary. So, you know, you had that journalistic side too, uh, with the journalists that they interviewed. It wasn't just like, let's interview all his friends. So, uh, you know, that side of it too, I thought gives it credibility. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. Hi, this is Kelly Dwyer. And Please remember this week to download and listen to On the NBA Beat. Thanks for sticking with us. We know you're short on time. As we wind down, before Joshua asked you about your latest book, State, which we're excited to discuss with you, just have a quick question about Steve Kerr, if you could entertain that briefly. He won three championships as a player with the Bulls, a couple more with the Spurs, and then he's obviously had massive success with the Warriors as a head coach. What impact do you think Kerr's success with the Bulls has had on his coaching success? Um, I think, you know, he's been pretty open about how he's taken stuff from all the coaches he's had in his life. And, you know, oh my God, Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich, you know, were two real huge influences on him. And he was on those two championship teams. Um, he played in college under Lute Olson, who was a pretty respected very respected coach in college during that time. Um, so then you combine that with winning these championships and playing with superstar athletes like David Robinson, like well, all the players on the Spurs and, you know, and then Jordan and Pippen. So I think all of that, he's very much into talking about that collaborative sort of um, process that he takes all pieces of that to make himself the coach. He is. I think he's probably too generous because he's a really, really smart, smart, intuitive and sensitive guy and, and, uh, and brilliant basketball tactician. So I think he would have been a good coach regardless, but he, he absolutely credits the bulls and he's given so many interviews on this documentary and no way is he resentful of anything of any facet of it. Now we transition from Phil Jackson and Steve Kerr to Arlene Mulder and Gina. <laughs> and I think that's a perfect transition. <laughs> thank you. Um, we definitely want to ask you about your most recent book, State. It was so well written and emotionally resonant for me that I ended up having to limit myself to a chapter or two a day. And before uh, quarantine, I'm I wasn't even a person who really read very much. Um, right. So so yeah. The, that's saying a lot. Um, the first, I want to ask you about the theme of ordinary heroes that shape young people's lives as they're coming of age, the teachers and coaches, administrators, parents. At what point in your life did you have the realization that had it not been for these people, you and your teammates would never have been able to have these life-changing formative experiences? 
Yeah, you know, I think, it, again, it's a little like what I said about um, being aware in the moment of how special it was covering the Bulls. I think that we were aware that we were going through something really cool and life-changing and that we were really, really lucky. Um, we knew this because our older sisters and cousins and other girls who were just a few years older than us didn't have the opportunity to play team sports at all. So while we didn't have the benefit of, uh, you know, 40 years later as adults saying, wow, that really made me stronger and made me able to cope with divorce and domestic violence and, and illness and, you know, discrimination and all kinds of stuff that we all, that all women deal with, you know, maybe we didn't have that, but I think we absolutely knew that we were just being incredibly empowered and given this this tremendous opportunity. Yeah, speaking of opportunities, um, the resources, opportunities, treatment, and reach afforded to women athletes have improved in so many ways since Title IX was passed in 72. And yet still, of course, women's sports often exist on the margins and have a long way to go. How would you characterize the current landscape of women's sports and how do you see it evolving? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I mean, that's kind of the first word I come up with because as empowered as we were and as inspiring as I think our story was, you know, I like to say if you would have said to us 40 years ago, well, we're 17, 18 year old girls, um, that, you know, in 40 years, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children fill up soccer stadiums. Uh, cheer for a woman's team, you know, what would you say? We'd be like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, are you kidding? We're going to have a woman president. We're going to have women GMs. We're going to have women coaches. I'm going to be the owner of the Bulls. You know, my friend's going to be the coach of the Bulls. We would have thought anything was possible because of how far we had come in just that decade. And so then if you would have said to us, okay, but those hundreds of thousands of fans will also be chanting for equal pay for those same women athletes, we would have been devastated. We would have been crushed to, to, for someone to have told us, you're going to be almost 60 years old and you're still not going to have, you're still not going to have compliance of Title IX fully. You're still not going to have women uh, getting equal pay. You're still not going to have a woman GM in professional sports or a coach. Um, you know, you're not going to have a woman president. You're not going to have the ERA passed. I mean, there's, I mean, we, mm-hmm, there's a lot of stuff. We have not come a long way, baby. And that was the, right. the motto at the time, you know, Virginia Slim cigarette ad was you've come a long way, baby. And that mm-hmm. was our motto. And that was our anthem. Um, you know, you, I am woman, hear me strong, you know, and like, I like to think women are, have a strong voice now, certainly and with the Me Too movement. But that was motivated by awful discrimination and sexual abuse. So, you know, um, it's it's disappointing. I don't mean to be like Debbie Downer, but... Um, no, I agree. Overall, it's, it's really a letdown to think, you know, of all the women, especially women older than us, that really paved the way, who will die probably without seeing so many of the things they fought for. Right. Finally, I want to talk to you about the differences between writing about yourself and your your own experiences. Right. How would you say the process of writing a book where you and your close friends and family feature prominently, how would you say that differs from writing about, say, the Bulls or Lou Pinella, the other two subjects of your book? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because it is really um, very uncomfortable. We're very self-conscious, most of us as journalists, and in my generation of journalists, for sure, we're brought up, you know, taught that we are not the story. And, and you know, there is no I and there is no involving our, our families and as sources and things like that. So all of a sudden, for me to write a, a Chicago Tribune magazine piece on my parents' struggle with Alzheimer's, which became one of the foundations of the book, um, was really painful, not just because of the subject matter, but just wondering what they would think, you know, am I betraying their confidence? And then what am I doing writing about myself? That was just awkward and weird. So um, once I got past that into the book stage and uh, started writing, it became an unbelievable like release and a great experience as a writer to be able to do that. And certainly is the most fulfilling uh, writing experience I've ever had. And there's no way I would, you know, have had the courage to, without that experience to walk into a NFL locker room, you know, to walk into an NBA locker room, to deal with a Jerry Krause, to, you know, to, to do all the things that I've done and then to, to write the book itself without having been through that experience. So I'm very, very grateful for the whole thing. Thank you so much, Melissa, for coming on. I wish we could have asked you so much more about your time covering the Bulls and State. It's such an amazing book, and I I really hope everyone reads it. Please enjoy the rest of The Last Dance, as everyone else in the free world will do. And thanks again. Oh, I will for sure. My whole family is uh, enjoying it. So thanks to you guys. We'll have to have a part two. Absolutely. We would love that. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, guys.